So welcome to another edition of On The Continent, your one-stop shop for everything to do with European football. I'm Dotson Adebayo. I'm Andy Brassel. And I'm Lars Sivertsen. And on today's programme, we're going to be uh, looking back on another week in the Champions League. Fascinating, as always, as you'd expect, but also going to the far frozen north. When I say far north, <laughs> almost as far as you can go and still be uh, not in the Arctic Ocean itself. And we're going to be obviously paying tribute to the king, the one and only Don Diego of football. So, Andy, let's start with Maradona. Obviously, people remember him for his uh, 1986 World Cup victory almost single-handedly for Argentina. But he was, to a certain extent, a European footballer of Argentinian um, uh, background, obviously. But he played for both Napoli and Barcelona. Yeah, and Sevilla later on as, as, as well, which is an interesting little postscript to his career. Well, postscript. It was, it was like his, his post-Napoli bolt hole after every, everything fell apart there. And um, I, I suspect we'll touch on that in, in a bit. Um, but it's easy to forget that his, his moves to Barcelona and to Napoli were both for world record fees. So this, these were both absolutely huge at the time as, 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 as they're huge now. Um, we've got to talk about Napoli for, for the most of this because um, that is the place, perhaps even more than Argentina, where he'll be mourned the most and where he is being mourned the most already. And um, it's, it's no surprise because if you've been to a match at um, the Stadio San Paolo, you will know that as well as the fact that the stadium itself has felt like a a, a relic of World Cup 90 for a, a long time. He's had a few recent cosmetic improvements. Um, it's, it's a club steeped in history. And um, wherever you go there, whether it's um, passing Vespers that have got pictures of Maradona sprayed on them, whether you're um, going past snack bars, cafes, um shirts that they sell outside the ground I was, I was saying to Jim on the football ramble earlier and Kate it's it's like he still plays for them it's, it's it's like he's still their best player today because he's such a part of not just their past but actually their their, their daily life and he, he has been you know you think at every match since he left there's still been that big picture of his that the, the flag with a uh, blue flag with a picture of his face and the number 10 in it that's been waved on the curva every single game because he changed them as a, as, as a club. And, um, you know, clubs have great players, but what he did there was something different. Um, you know, this was a club that was not only um, an unsuccessful, relatively unsuccessful provincial club, but made to feel provincial by the giants of, of the North. And he understood that. When people talk about Maradona from as, as as being someone who came from the slums to the top of the world. That's why there was the click with Napoli because he always felt as if he was um, looked down upon because of his his background. And people from Napoli and supporters of Napoli felt that they were looked down upon by the, the rest of Italy. So there was there was there was that kinship. 
there was that togetherness and to have the most expensive and the best in the world on your side and to, to understand it, to understand that feeling as well was something special. You know, they'd never won the Serie A title um, before he arrived. And then um, at his peak, they won the title twice in two years and finished second in the two years in between. And at this point, by the way, Serie A, end of 80s, start of 90s, was incredible. It was so good. You know, you look at the the, the, the teams that won it in between. Um, you look at that inter side of 1989. You look at the fact that you had the Milan of... Hullet, Van Basten, Rijkaard, who were um, winning European Cups at the time, An- Ancelotti, um, Baresi, all the players they had. So for any team to win the league um, in that era that, that wasn't Milan, that wasn't Inter, um, was something spectacular. It begs a comparison with Leicester, doesn't it, in their 2014-2015 season, or 2015-2016. You know the one I mean. But it, it begs that comparison. But I imagine with Maradona, Lash particularly, um, that we're talking not just about what he did on the field. Andy touched on it. That there seems to be a sort of an existential connection with the people of Naples who do things their own way in Italy, don't they? Yeah, and that's where the Leicester comparison wouldn't hold up, really, because I don't think there's any sense in this country that the population of Leicester are particularly downtrodden uh, compared to other towns. I mean, I think the, the cultural aspect of, of this is, is really, really significant. Um, that There is a sense, and, and to this day, that, that was in Naples not that long, a couple of years ago, and, and spoke to people, and there is a real sense still that they're sort of looked down on by everyone else in Italy. Um, and um, and there is a sort of we talk about a north south divide. I think there's sort of a real a, a, a sense of sort of racism towards almost people from the south. I mean, southerners are really sort of looked down on in a way Definitely. that's that's really hard. I think for a lot of people in England to to really understand in the same way because it is different from anything we have here. And for them then to to have something that no one can take away from them and no one can, I mean, they might have better schools and hospitals and cleaner streets and less crime and all of this stuff up north, you know, they might have grander cities and more power and more money and all these things. But but for a short space of time, they couldn't beat them on the field. You know, we have a team that's better than you and there's nothing you can do about that. There's nothing you can say, there's nothing you can do. You can't change that, we are better than you. And I think the effect that has on the sort of on the collective sort of self-worth of a city like that, that's football mad to begin with. It, it, it's really hard to put into words, but I mean, we're trying. We have uh, but, a player it, it, that's better than you, rather than we have a team. We have a player yeah. that's better than you as well. But, yeah, but, not but for the, sure. The, and, the player made other players come. You know, Kareka wanted to be part of it. Um, other players wanted to be part of it because of, because of him. It became a destination, right? Yeah, and he was obviously with his background... It's something that runs throughout his life, you know, and, and he made his mistakes, obviously, and, 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 and some things went awry, but he always was someone who had the sort of instinctive empathy with with people from, from difficult backgrounds. And right up until sort of modern times, I mean, I've watched recently the, the very interesting documentary series when, uh, from his time in Mexico, and where... Um, uh, when when he was in charge of a team in the second tier there from one of the sort of cartel hotspots. And there was a player on that team who was a young player who was from a farm in the middle of the sort of uh, 
uh, the, the part of the world where 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 drugs are are grown basically and and from a really rough and could very easily have ended up going into a very bad life and ended up being a footballer instead for this team and you could see the sort of instinctive empathy that Maradona had with this young kid and he, t- he tried to get the the plug the plug club to give him a bigger contract and help him out and this mm. sort of thing and like right everything he'd been through and and he's obviously not a saint and he's obviously you know but he had that and I think that that sort of empathy with the downtrodden and empathy with the, the the people who are put upon in various ways it, it kind of turbocharged his relationship with with Naples as a city obviously if you come in and you're the best player in the world and you go to a provincial city where they're mad about football but they've never won anything and you're the focal point of a team that wins one of the hardest domestic championships ever of course you're going to be a hero of course you're going to be a god but in terms of understanding his sort of mythical presence and the fact that it feels like he's still there like Andy said you have to add in the cultural thing and the sort of empathy and the sort of the connection that was between the people there and, and him and, and, and how that was reciprocated. Yeah, to a certain extent, Napoli got lucky, though. They they got Maradona when his head was in the right place as well as his body being in the right place at the right time because you look at Barcelona, they didn't get him at that point. Sevilla, they mentioned afterwards, they didn't get him at that point. We'll talk about Argentina as well. Obviously, for the World Cup, he raised his game. But apart from... <clears throat> those World Cup videos which are amazing Mm. that many of us will have seen over the last 24 hours since the news broke that he had died apart from that what you're watching of his brilliance is in an athlete shirt yeah that that is true Um, and I think so much of that is um, as you say right place right time right club Um, as as Lars was saying the, the, the connection between um, him and Napoli, they were made for each other because, as Lars was saying there, I think it's quite right to say they turbocharged his career. But, but the way he was torpedoed Barcelona because to go there um, with such a great reputation, such great future promise, um, he wasn't going into the Barcelona that we know today. Uh, you know, Barcelona hadn't won the league for almost a decade by the time he arrived there. And I think they won, won it, what, like once in in the in the six or seven years afterwards um, before you get to the point where um, Cruyff took, takes over and, and there's the dream team at the start of the 90s. So, yeah, it would have been Terry Venables who won it in 84, 85, the, the, the year after he left. Um, and I think that the club found him difficult to deal with but he didn't find the stability that he needed there either. Um, you know, at, th- at this point, this was um, where you had like a Basque domination of, of Spanish football because you'd had um, title wins in 81, 82 for Real Sociedad. Um, and then 83, 84 would have been athletic Bilbao. And so much of um, Maradona's Barcelona story is around those confrontations um, with Athletic and you think particularly the one um, with Aito Goikachea the, the butcher of Bilbao as, as, as he came to be known and his horrendous challenge on Maradona in that, in that game in September 83 now that was something which it, it, it was it was politically quite hot at the moment at the time because you, you think of this surge of Basque success in what is that like quite a new democracy at the time? Cause you think Spain only becomes 
democratic. It's only post-Franco in, what, 74, isn't it? So at the time, Spain has all these teething problems as a country. And when we think of Spanish football, even today, Don, it's, I think it's the most political or most politically charged um, football landscape out there in terms of the major European countries. And that's something that I think the edge has kind of been taken off with the extraordinary globalization of Barcelona and Real Madrid. And obviously Barcelona have always seen themselves as politically representing something, which I think because they've got this global audience who don't really understand that now, they've maybe moved away from that a little bit, which is sometimes to the frustration of some of those hardcore supporters who go to the stadium. But you think of this clash anyway between Basque and Catalan cultures, two cultures that have been suppressed under the, the, the Franco dictatorship and the, the the Basques are flourishing on the pitch and Barcelona are looking for their time as well. And Maradona is meant to be the man who leads them to that. And then he gets snapped in half by Goyka Chad. Funnily enough, um, part of that story, a character in that story that we never talk about is Bernd Schuster, who had this running battle with Goykachea over a, a number of years. And actually, just before Goykachea puts in that horrendous tackle in Ma- on Maradona that breaks his ankle and tears his ankle ligaments, Schuster's already knocked over Goykachea. And Goykachea talked about it afterwards and he said, I was absolutely full of rage. I saw him out of control. And Maradona was kind of collateral damage in this feud between Goykachea and, and Schuster. But obviously that stayed in his mind for a long time. When you get to the bit where there's the 84 cup final, which turns out to be Maradona's last game for Barcelona, there's this massive chaotic flare up at the end. Um, Maradona talked afterwards about um, how he'd been like racially abused and his, 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 his father had been abused by, by some of the athletic players and he just wasn't having it. And there's this big fight at the end and, at that point, Barcelona decide we can't deal with this anymore. You know, there, there are a load of players who get banned, but, you know, we don't really want to have hitched our wagon to this guy who suffered from injury. He got hepatitis and he was out for three months in the, in, the, in the first season. And we can't really go on with this. But Goyka Chea was defined by that as well, especially as Maradona went on to become bigger and better afterwards. I think Barcelona fans kind of looked back and thought, he could have been doing that for us, which I, th- I think doesn't really acknowledge, as we were saying, this connection that there was between um, be- between Napoli and, and, and Maradona. It's maybe a little bit I- idealistic, but it is a sense of missed opportunity that you get around Barcelona and, uh, um, and Maradona. And Lash, I suppose part of this context that uh, Andy talks about, about uh, the way that Spanish football has been politically divided. Whilst that's going on between Madrid or Atletico and Barcelona or whatever it might be, and they're chopping um, Maradona to bits on the pitch, partly because he's the best player in the world Mm. and he's on his own Mm. the best player in the world. It's not like now with Messi and Ronaldo, or at least as it was when Ronaldo was representing Madrid and Messi representing Barcelona. So two best players. Maradona's on his own at this point. Although I'll tell you what, it's an interesting thing. By the time he gets to Italy, 
they, they spoke to um, Michel Platini and L'Equipe um, this morning, the, the day after the, the, the death of Maradona. And, uh, you know, we always think of the rivalry between Pelé and Maradona. Platini's still quite prickly about him. And he talks about the rivalry they had on the field. That, that they had a friendship of, of, of sorts as well. Like um, Maradona came to Nancy for his testimonial. And just as these stories you hear with Maradona, who, again, as we talked about earlier on the Ramble, he's someone who loved the game so much. He borrowed a pair of um, Jean-Pierre Papin's boots to play in this, in this testimonial for, in, in Nancy for, for, for Platini. But Platini is very, very conscious of the fact that in Serie A, they were facing off. And for for him, that's you know one of, one of his regrets that they didn't really get to do that to the same extent at a World Cup. But nobody was hacking um, Platini with all due respect in the way that they were hacking no, Maradona. And when no. you look at those clips of Maradona, Lash dancing his way like a ballet dancer, having to hop, skip, and jump every defender that's coming at him uh, like the butcher of uh, Bill Bauer. Uh, yeah, and that's that's one of that's the reasons why... That's part of his why, game, though. That yeah, became part of his game. Which that's is why it doesn't quite sit right with me when you see so many uh, of the more sort of mean-spirited obituaries refer to him as a cheat in, in England in particular. Only in England. Yeah. Only in England. Yes, uh, because it's something... You, you look at the hand of God, of course, but that is a very sort of narrow and particular form of cheating. The type of cheating, I would also call it cheating, the amount of violence that he was subjected to. That is also stuff that has nothing to do with football. And which the rules which of the couldn't game. happen in modern football. Yeah, and it's hard to even comprehend. Yeah. So I did spend some time uh, during lockdown watching old games, uh, just to stay sane, because I'm used to watching so much football and then suddenly there was no football and I was just going mad. So as I watched, I found a website <laughs> that had a lot of old games and I watched quite a lot of old games. And you are really taken aback by a few things uh, watching sort of games from this era and with Maradona there are a couple of things you notice and, and one of the things is the tackles obviously and and how he is just subjected to to what I would consider acts of violence quite often like even I think it's a your your good friend Tim Vickery refers to this a few times you know even in the official World Cup film from 1986 on the, the bit from the England Argentina game there's, there's a clip of like Terry Fennick elbowing Maradona in the face which <laughs> like there's an obvious red card and it's like and, and the referee misses it and I mean that, that's also a form of extra uh, of something beyond the rules that was done to him, yeah. which is never referenced uh, at all. And he just had to deal with this. And I think if you're subjected to that much uh, physical, um, that many physical transgressions, of course you, you're you not going to be apologetic about being a bit sneaky in other ways. I mean, well, why, why, of, why should you? This is part of what he's up against, being the best footballer yeah. in the world, because everybody's got their eye on him. He's a proper number 10. Yeah. I think he sent, sets a be- benchmark for being a number 10, a leader, left side, right side, centre. He'll mm. take you from anywhere, provide the ball for his teammates, because he was never selfish with the ball, never selfish no. with the ball. Sometimes uh, he decided, look, I've got to take it all the way. And once he's got his on that goal nothing's going to stop him but that's also one of the things you notice when you watch some of the classic Maradona games is there's a lot of goals that are familiar because you'll have seen the clips be it as part of documentaries or on YouTube or whatever but when you watch the games you realise there are a lot of like amazing Maradona highlights that never makes the clips because there were passes that were then sort of misused by his teammates (laughs) I'm sure people who have time on their hands can go through these games and make amazing compilations of like not quite assists that Maradona put on for other players I'm going to ask you both though to come up with one move, goal, dribble, 
uh, from any period, probably Napoli would be the best place to uh, go to with this. Is, is there one that sticks out? Obviously, for a lot of people internationally, there are moves and goals that stick out. But what about in terms of club football? I, I don't know if, if there is one because there were so many moments with Napoli. And I think like possibly the, re- the reason I'm actually here in the first place is when I was a kid, there used to be um, uh, a, a store that sold football kits in um, Carnaby Street called Soccer Scene. And they also sold um, VHS videos. I could never afford any of the kits. And I got a couple of the VHS videos. You didn't go and nick them, did you? <laughs> I wasn't tall enough. They were what, on big is, rails. Is that just my part of town? So you couldn't afford it, you know? Um, and um, I, I got these uh, videos in consecutive seasons called um, 110 Great Goals Italia Style. And it was Peter Brackley was um, commentating on them, the, the late, great Peter Brackley. And um, th- they were all... Um, I weren't in chronological order. There was no context to them. They were just a load of great goals. And of course, Hullet and Van Basten and um, Roberto Baggio were all over those. But lots and lots of Maradona. And when I think of him, and really that was the first, you know, I'd I'd never been anywhere. I'd never been off my estate, really. Mm. So to have that whole other world opened up to me was incredible. He was a huge part of that and that sort of started my interest I guess in in European football in a time when you know you couldn't go onto the internet and watch whatever game you wanted from from anywhere and those videos were kind of a, a lifeline really and just I've, I think of one particular chip against uh, Juventus which would have been I think it would have I think it would have been in the 1990 title win I think and it, it comes from the, the halfway line and, and, and chips it over the goalkeeper. The thing I used to love so much about um, Maradona celebrating goals at the San Paolo is there being this huge running track. And now that's thought of as very passe. You want the fans to be as close as possible, which I understand. But he'd sort of go off the pitch, <laughs> celebrating onto this enormous running track. And it's like, yeah, he can stop the clock for three minutes now because he's going to get submerged by substitutes Far too many ball boys. You don't need that many ball boys. <laughs> few fans, few random people who don't really know what they're doing there. And he does the full mini lap of honour. Mm. It's just mm. magnificent. And I think that's something that we, um, you, you mentioned earlier, I liked it, that he was not just that he was in the right place. We've, we've talked about that, but at the right time as well. Uh, because the str- the league was very, very strong. Yes, but it's quite a low scoring league still. Mm. I mean, if you go through his uh, season, you know, you don't, uh, you know, there's not a lot of high scoring games. And that meant for, for a player like him who, you know, <laughs> he could break through pretty much any defense. Like there was no defense against this guy. And you have a guy who can, you know, he can score that goal. I mean, whatever happens in the game, he can score a goal and, and, and that, and that can tilt the game in your favor. And then that's the only thing that really ends up mattering. So you did those celebrations. If you'd done that now and had like all the ball boys getting involved and all the coaches, it would seem a bit, foolish maybe because there's probably going to be three more goals in this game so what does it matter <laughs> <laughs> but back then that wasn't necessarily the case I mean That's Maradona true. scoring that goal that could that, that that was the game very one often. nil one nil often enough okay I'll, I'll, I'll tell you and if I might just close this conversation on this point go on um, I've seen so many of these videos so I can't tell you time and place who it was against and all of that but he, he had that little 
back flick um, that sometimes didn't come off, but it always seemed to nutmeg defenders. But the best thing that he did, I mean, you just can't imagine. Nowadays, of course, if if you're the number 10 and you've got the ball in the penalty area, you bang it in as hard as you can, as far away from the goalkeeper's fingers and still into the back of the net. Maradona's style is, no, I'll dribble past the goalkeeper coming after me. Oh, and now there's a defender. I've dribbled past the goalkeeper. Now there's a, I'll dribble past him as well and put the ball in the back of the net. He does that so many times the manager must have been tearing his hair out and saying just bang it in no Maradona had class has class because of course his goals his football lives on forever noi attendiamo naturalmente che venga battuto questo calcio di punizione piede sulla palla specie parte il tiro rete rete Maradona ha segnato magnifico calcio di punizione da parte della formazione napoletana il Napoli è passato in vantaggio proprio a circa 27 28 minuti dall'inizio del secondo tempo e conduce così per una rete a zero And of course, uh, a week in the Champions League would not be a week in the Champions League without some upset or otherwise. Um, the clash of Milan and Madrid. What did you make of it, Lars? I mean, it, it's hard to not go straight in with the Arturo Vidal incident there, because that is the thing that's going to stick in my memory from this game. He's not, the last of the Mohicans, yeah, isn't he? Yeah, not just because it is a hobby horse of mine. I, I, I was going to, I'd love to see it when referees, when they hand out a yellow for descent, and that triggers even more descent. You should give the second yellow. That should happen more often. Mm. Uh, and, and, and I thought that was really, really good by, by Anthony Taylor, who was. And it was also such a... That moment is such a failure for Antonio Conte because he he kept like he wanted more experienced guys and in this sort of time of pandemic and <laughs> and, and belt tightening everywhere interest gone out and and bought him these sort of old dudes that he wanted which from a financial point of view we've discussed on the pod before is a really expensive thing to do because even if they don't cost you a lot you have to pay them and you're not getting anything back when you sell them so in terms of like the industrial economy of football getting these old dudes is expensive and Inter have done that and they've given Conte what he wants and uh, and a guy who's had his issues getting it done in the Champions League before he's he's at it now and and one of the guys he's, that's been brought in because he wanted experience goes ahead and does that I mean, it's it's hard to see past that as just the, the moment of the week it is unreal isn't it when you think that as a coach you nail your colours to the mask by saying you know experience is going to make us win and and then it, then someone like that ends up letting you down but Vidal is not any old experienced no, player is he he's 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 a, he's a loose cannon. And um, it must be so infuriating for them because they were second best by quite a long way in that Inter anyway. Um, I thought Real Madrid were really good. And when you saw the team sheets come out, I thought Real Madrid could be in a little bit of trouble here because they picked exactly the same team as started against Villarreal at the weekend, in which they were poor after scoring a, a good opening goal by Mariano. And, you know, you think no Ramos, no Benzema, who are let's be fair, Real Madrid's best two players. And you think there's an opportunity there for Inter. But again, this will go back to being pinned on Conte, won't it, Lars, for his his shortcomings in the Champions League. Whereas 
I, I tend to be a little bit more sympathetic to Antonio Conte than that because I think, um, if you go back to last season, I played some really good football in the group stage of, of, of the Champions League and probably deserved to go through. They didn't quite manage it. They blew a two-goal lead in, in, in Dortmund. And then you go a little bit further back and you think, you know, when in, in 2019 when Tottenham got all the way to the final... Well, they almost didn't get out of the group stage, did they? Mm. And if Inter had managed to conjure a winner against PSV Eindhoven on match day six, they wouldn't have done. So Inter shooting themselves in the foot in the Champions League is not just an Antonio Conte thing, is it? It's an Inter thing because it happened under Spalletti as well. It's a fair shout. And I'm also, I'm very suspicious of the uh, of the notion that there are supposedly certain coaches who can just, they can do it domestically, but they can't do it in Champions League. Like it's still football. I'm not, it doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> but what it is, is a slightly smaller sample size. And it's, you can be very unlucky with the draw. And I'm not like, I don't want to... There's wanna, greater chance involved, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, and, and I'm not going to make excuses for Antonio Conte. I'm sure he'll get around to that himself. <laughs> but looking at this group, you, you've not like... Shakhtar Donetsk are not an easy team to play against in the Champions League. Like that's not a that's not a good you don't yeah, Real Madrid, this is not a vintage Real Madrid team, but they're still Real Madrid. And and Gladbach had been tremendous. They were sort of an emerging force under Marco Rosa. Like this is not an easy group to get out of. I mean, even I, I know he's got really no excuses because he's been given all these old dudes that he wants and, and this sort of thing, but I have some sympathy. Like this is a tough group to get out of. Also, the thing with Inter Dotten, they will give goals away. And if you give goals away like they give goals away like they gave away a goal very early on and um, we'll come to Martin Odegaard and his contribution because yes. I thought he, he, we will because uh, <laughs> I, I, I thought he was he was excellent last night in the hour that he, he was on um, if, if you give goals away you're going to make it very very hard to, to, to win matches particularly in knockout football and I, I think if you look at um, if, if you look at the Champions League if you can get a team who can defend properly They've got a super chance. I think you look at Chelsea this year, if they can continue their recent defensive improvement and you look at all the attacking weapons they've got, like playing well is overrated when it comes to the Champions League. Just get the games won. Yeah. That, that's all that really sure. matters, isn't it? But Inter make it so difficult for themselves. A bit like Manchester City have at certain points. Like If, you, if you're at the point where even with an excellent squad... You've not. It's not enough to play really well to win the game. You've got to play really well and then score a few goals to make up for the mistakes you made, plus the goals you need to score to win the game. That's a that's lot a of lot. effort. That's a lot. That's, that's you, hard. You do man. also like. <laughs> sorry to reduce it back to this, but you do really need for your most experienced midfielder not to get himself sent off for being an idiot after half an hour. I mean, yeah, that, that is that's one of true. the things you need. But they were starting to come back into the game at that point. They were starting to find, mm. I, I guess, a gentle kind of. They missed a couple of chances, hold. didn't they? Yeah, they that, could have scored. That, they, they did absolutely. Even when they were down to ten men. And yeah, that's that's right. But I, I do I do think that once. Vidal goes off that makes it ridiculously hard mm. particularly with the amount of football that you've got to play at the moment I mean the last thing you want to be doing is is playing what 50 minutes with with, with 10 men I, I think it's I but think it it's was, really tough it was Zidane that made the double changes after Vidal gets sent off Lush um, mm-hmm. it, whereas Conte is not really um, or doesn't seem um, to know what to do how to rearrange his squad at that they, point they did make some changes uh, to be fair brought on Ambrosio and Persich but it's like statistically losing a man in the first half 
like damages your chances of getting a result so much. I mean, we can talk about the tactics and how the games play out, but just big picture, if you look at, you know, the odds and, and percentages and stuff, like if you lose a man in the first half and you're already one goal down, like you're not winning that game. But you know, if we talk it about... It happened very often at all. So I feel like it's kind of harsh to, to go too much into... If we talk about midfield, Lars, let's talk about Odegaard. Yeah. Because starting in the Champions League, which is a, a, a rare privilege for him and they weren't brilliant at the weekend but they do need to turn over that midfield Real Madrid they do look a bit stale a lot of the time is this the first step to something bigger I'm still I still suspect that Erdogan's future is more replacing Modric in that midfield in the slightly deeper more controlling role okay because I think his instincts his instincts on the ball are perhaps a little bit careful sometimes. You know, he, he doesn't take as many risks on the ball as I think we were just, I mean, we spent a lot of time talking about Maradona. I mean, he he keeps it safe. His instinct is, you know, to keep possession ticking over. He doesn't try quite as many high-risk passes. Now, that can change. You can develop. You can try to encourage him. But I think his his natural instinct is much more controlling the pace, keep the ball ticking over. And I, I do wonder if he'll mature more into the sort of the ball distributor in midfield that 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 cross but for that, the Champions that, that, League that, that Modric plays but for the Champions but, but, League that's but what for you an want, away game yeah. against Inter in the Champions League where you want to keep it a bit tidy uh, playing him as a number ten yeah, yeah that's fine and from a Norwegian perspective we, we we currently have the Dortmund number nine and the Real Madrid number ten it's not so, it's not so bad it's a, it's a shame we're not playing any international football you know Norway is going to feature <laughs> so much in today's on the continent <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> with your permission Maybe we need to move on to something well, non-Norwegian. With your yeah, permission, yeah, of course, Lars. Yeah, we... <laughs> I will permit it. <laughs> it sounds as if you're resisting that permission. But no, not at all. Uh, <laughs> not talking about PSG not being good Indeed. is, is it's Indeed. always fun. PSG, that's where the problem is for a coach. For goodness sake, is he going to survive? Um, I, it's not a case of if Thomas Tuchel goes, it's a case of when. I think it would have been less a case of when had they not beaten RB Leipzig this week and they've got themselves back in with a chance of, of, of qualifying but it's, it's not a given at all and when you bear in mind that Paris Saint-Germain got to the um, final of the Champions League last season um, everything that they've done in the group and the, the unrest behind the scenes the imbalance of the squad has led them to this point and it's interesting that they win this vital game against RB Leipzig and yet are absolutely coach and players panned in the newspapers this week and on French television because the quality of the performance was was not good. Tuchel was annoyed by that because he said, and not unreasonably, well, look, my players dug in, they gave everything, what do you want? And I, I think when you saw the end of that, when... Uh, Paris were closing the space and making tackles and you saw the substituted Neymar and Mbappe like off the bench going, come on lads and in- encouraging their, 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 their team that, that's a nice thing to see but I think we often um, rewrite the story after we've seen the ending and that, that could easily be the case here because there are a few little moments and I, I don't think Leipzig made enough opportunities and um, clearly that's that's an issue they've they've got and I think Paris did defend pretty well on the whole but 
the, the bit where they started to look more comfortable in the game was in the last 10 minutes when Marco Verratti came on, who unfortunately, because of his injuries, they, they, they miss him far too much. They're, they're reliant on a player who's not fit nearly often enough. And, and nearly but, got himself sent off immediately after coming on. Exa- exactly. That's what we're talking about. In yeah. terms of rewriting stuff, if the referee and the VAR do their job Verratti's off about yeah, a minute after coming sure. on. If which they is do a, their an job, unbelievable, a crazy tackle. tackle if, watching it, you idiot! Like, what are you doing? But if the yeah, referee is just an idiot, you if start thinking. The ref and VAR did their job. That penalty may not have been given because Di Maria seemed to go down without any sort of contact at all. Yeah, and they got the penalty. I, out I, I, I take your point. If Marcel Zabitzer was in was in four yards of me. I know he's diving in at some point. I, you can't get me on the floor quick enough. <laughs> yeah. Is that football? <laughs> I'm just saying. I think, I, I wouldn't mind if they didn't give pens for those, but I think it is also the refereeing convention very much that if there is a little bit of contact like that, then then you do give them. So I mean, It's, 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 it's that it is. angle, isn't it? It's the yeah. angle from which yeah, he makes yeah, yeah, the challenge, yeah, yeah, yeah. which makes the referee... Give it, I think, but the 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 Verratti one, I mean, is oh it's, it's not even disputable. And you know, you had the close up, and it's the beauty of thirty six cameras in HD, isn't it? That <laughs> yeah. you see that big scrape on Nkunku's knee afterwards, and you're thinking he could have really hurt him there. And Verratti did what he always does, which is not only make a mistake, but talk his way through it. Mm. And Laurent Blanc always used to say that to him. He said. Is is there any point at which you're awake at which you you're not talking? And he found that quite frustrating. But Verratti is past the point now. He's past that point of experience. We know what he is as a player, and he's such a wonderful player. We also know, in terms of overplaying, in terms of tackling, in terms of not keeping his mouth shut, he's not going to change. And I think having the reliance on a player like that does show a huge hole in the recruitment. Now, Andy, you follow the French scene closer than I do. I wonder, was it a complete... Co- I mean, maybe he just saw something and wanted to kick it, but, you know, w- was it a complete coincidence that Verratti comes in and he immediately puts in that kind of reducer on Nkunku, given his history? Well, I, I think it's tempting to believe that the the, the coach has, has gone out there and said, right, okay, lock this down for me yeah. and he, he takes it a little too <laughs> literally but we, we saw that didn't we that that lack of composure that there is in Paris Saint-Germain in general at the, at the moment I mean there was that huge tackle from Ander Herrera wasn't there yeah. I, I can't remember who that was on um, I, I think Forsberg might have gone off by that point but I mean that was that was very much an amber card wasn't it mm-hmm Amber. Le- leaning towards red. Uh, am I missing? Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. It, just because it's not like a traffic light system when it comes to football, as you know. Maybe, maybe it should be. Yeah, perhaps so. Carrasco. Jurovsko. Maradona. Maradona. Trazi Felipe was a shoot. My stuff. He bought as Diego Maradona. So, at last, yes. let's take us far, far north. <laughs> it's time for some Noshka Rikskring's casting, isn't it? There's time for that now. Excellent. Noshka Rikskring's It's my favourite word, my favourite corporation in Norway. That's their BBC. Right. In our case, Noshka Rikskring's casting. Sounds really funny to us Swedes. Yeah. It does, Lars. Okay. 
Well, yeah, listen, the, the miracle of Boda, uh, Boda Glimt. Uh, we, we have a new uh, t- champion in Norway in, in Boda Glimt. And I have to give you a bit of a geographical and historical context here. Because, uh, as you know, Norway is not a very big country, just over five million people. But, we're very, but it's big. A very, very long country. I mean, if, yes. you, if you stand on the southernmost tip uh, of the country near a, there's a lighthouse near a place called Lindesnes right on the southern tip, you are roughly the same distance away from the northernmost tip as you are from sort of Kiev, Rome, thereabouts. Like, I mean, th- th- this is the sort of geographical distances we're dealing with. 1,500 miles or something like that? Yeah, and if, if you're driving from uh, the biggest city in the north, Tromsø, down to Oslo, that's about a 22-hour drive if mm. you do it in one, which mm. you shouldn't. So it's like it, wow. it's some pretty serious geographical distances here, which which over the years has led to, you know, again, we've talked about north-south divide in, in Italy. It's not quite as stark. I don't think there's a lot of sort of... but but, but also so actually, if you go back a number of decades to sort of 60s and 70s, there are anecdotal stories of of people from the north moving to Oslo and, and being denied, like they're not allowed to rent flats and stuff because no one wants northerners. And there's a, there, there is a sort of historical of a cultural and geographical divide there. And um, football teams from the north uh, were only really allowed in to the top division many years after it was started. I think the first sort of nas- vaguely national league in Norway or the beginnings of one. I think they had regional divisions and then a playoff. Uh, anyway, it was started in 1937 uh, but you didn't have a team from the north uh, in the top division until 1972. Is that because people okay. didn't want to travel that far so north? people would cite geogra- logistical differences yeah, and, for, right. logistic- and for sure there will have been logistical challenges but there was, again I wasn't around but anecdotally uh, you hear sort of old timers say that there was also a real sense that the Southerners didn't think a team from the North could compete. Uh, and there was a slightly sniffy attitude because the other thing I forgot to say is that the two northernmost counties in Norway make up sort of like 35% of the mainland landmass, but only something like 8% of the population lives there. So it's like, it's, it's, it's wild, you know, geographical, big distances, you know, the, not that big. And, and Buda and Tromsø, the two biggest cities in the North, have only got something like 50 and, and 70,000 people. So it's, it's quite a rural part of the world and and it does stand to reason that they might not produce the most powerful football teams ever and so they they, they weren't really allowed in but this was of course proven entirely wrong uh, Bodo Glimt um, won the cup in 1975 just a few years after they were allowed into the top division uh, they, they reached the final again in 77 and uh, they they finished second in the top division in 77 in 1993 2003 and, and last season they have finished second a few times uh, Tromsø have also uh, won a cup and, and finished second this sort of thing so you know, the, the northern teams have long since dispelled the notion that a team from the north can't ever be good and it's even become like a bit of a cliche like no one enjoys playing away at Tromsø in, 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 late, in late, late, late October not yeah. in the winter it's raining you have to get the tractor on at half time to, to get the snow away Chelsea still remember that I think yeah yeah <laughs> and famously Alex Tetty of Norwich once scored up north for Rosenborg and, and made a snow angel when he celebrated <laughs> um, so, so, so uh, there's a lot of respect I think in Norway and the south for the teams from the north but they've never gone all the way and won a title and and I think you would often point to uh, financial factors there uh, Bodo Glimt this season their budget was uh, I mean less than less than a third of, of uh, Rosenberg's um, 
Maybe even less than that. So they're, they're, what's they're, their fan base? Do you know how many people so follow they're, them? They're, they have a they have a significant fan base off north. Like the stadium isn't huge, but in a town of, of fifty thousand people, you know. But I, I want to put all out there just to explain what a story this is, uh, because this was a team that was only promoted a couple of years ago. They've been a bit of a yo-yo club on the on the basis of being uh, of the size of the club and all this sort of stuff. But they finished. They really shocked everyone last season and finished second. And they finished second playing really good football. Uh, they've they've always been a sort of four three three team. They, they talk about how they played four three three for almost fifty years, which, which is broadly speaking true. But what they've added recently is that they've added this concept of the high press of, of pressing very high, keeping a high line, um, in a, encouraging their defenders to bring the ball out from the back. Things that are not typically done uh, that much in in Norway. Uh, now they 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 shocked everyone. Finished second last season. Everyone thought, all right, well done, Border. But now we sort of think the the, the gravity, uh, the gravitational forces of modern football will come into play you know if a team like Bodo Glimt finish second that means their best players leave that means they get picked apart and they fade away that's what always happened and they sold the breakout star of last season Håkon Evian uh, went to Azad Alkmaar uh, they had a winger who went to the Egyptian league and they, they raised a bit of money some of which was reinvested but we were all kind of assuming yeah, mid-table at best this season but then the season started and they, they won and they just kept winning and they wouldn't stop winning and we're, we're five, five games left of the season now and they have been confirmed champions and 20 and let me just five read, games left let me just read some numbers at you they played 25 games they've won 22 drawn two and lost one scoring 85 goals in the process they've, they're averaging over three goals a game it's completely incredible and, and this is with a sort of lower lower mid-table budget and, and a team that is comprised of there are no big stars here there's no sugar daddy pumping money into anything if you look at the players in the squad there is a real sort of local core there you have the sort of midfield playmaker, Patrick Berg, uh, who is the son of Urian Berg, who, who played for Bodo Glimt, also played for Rosenborg in the Champions League, was in the Rosenborg team that beat Dortmund, beat PSG. Uh, so he's, you know, he's got a real history there. And his father again, so Patrick's grandfather, was, was Harald uh, Dutteberg, who played in the cup final win in 75. Uh, so he's the third generation uh, Bodo oh, Glimt wow. uh, playing there. A real uh, sort of family um, uh, high, high, uh, yeah, thing there. You also have the left back Fredrik André Björkan who's the son of the sporting director Osman Björkan who played for the Cup Cup, uh, uh, winning team of 93 I believe they won the Cup Uh, so there is a sort of local core of players, uh, some of whom have a family connection to the uh, to the club. Uh, you also have uh, a couple of foreign player, the, the players. You have a Danish striker co- uh, called uh, Junker. You have a right winger called Philip Sinkanagel. Uh, but the, but the majority of the of the squad is kind of made up of kind of Norwegian journeyman types, Norwegian players who have have often been signed from the second tier and even further down. There's one player I'd like to mention because I think he's quite emblematic of this team and and one of the things I think is worth celebrating. And that's the centre half, uh, Marius Lode, uh, who is from my town, from Brynne, same place as uh, Erling Holland grew up. And um, and I saw him sort of make his breakthrough for Brynne in the second tier uh, like a good number of years ago. And he occurred to me to be like a decent player, but not might have a good career in the second tier. But he didn't, like to my untrained eye, didn't look like a lot more than that. A little bit faster than defenders at that level, but nothing very special. Uh, and then in 2015, he was 22, uh, he tested positive for Ritalin as he got banned for a season. Now, we don't have a lot of doping issues in the second tier of Norwegian football, but he'd uh, foolishly taken Ritalin to help him focus on some university exams. Uh, that's his explanation. I think it sounds plausible. But that means he 
left at the age of something like 22, he lost a year of his career. He was not allowed to play any football. He just had to keep in shape. He worked as a waiter at a local restaurant in Brina uh, and just kept shape, kept in shape on the side. And, you, and you're thinking, you know, you'd do well to have any kind of career at any level after that. And he came back. Brina eventually got relegated to the third tier. And he then left for Buda, who was in the second tier at the time. And I, I remember, I can't have been the only one thinking, you've done all right getting a contract at Buda to begin with after <laughs> after all of that. Like, good good for you, Marius. But then he he ended up playing a really important role for them as they were promoted. And he stayed in the team when they got promoted to the first tier. And he's established himself as a sort of real sort of rock at the heart of their defense. And he's gone from being someone who looked you know, in his very early 20s as a sort of okay defender in the second tier of Norway. I'm being a little bit harsh, but he never struck me as someone who had something special to being, you know, the most impressive ball carrying center half I've seen in Norway for a long, long time. And the reason I'm telling this slightly over long story is that whatever they're doing up at Bode, they've created, it's not about individual players. And I don't think it's about the coach either, even though he's done a great job, but they've somehow created an environment where players come up there there and 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 they become a lot better than I think a lot of people thought they could become uh, and 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 they and then they managed to bring out something out of these guys uh, that no one really saw 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 before. So we've seen um, one of them fly the nest already with Jens Petahago going to Milan. He actually scored his first Serie A goal at the weekend mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, in the win at Napoli. Um, but from what you're saying, Lars, it, it sounds to me as if these are a bunch of well, I suppose you used the word journeyman, didn't you? Yeah, but, it's but, a little bit harsh, but there are examples of players there who've, you know, not really impressed other places but, before but, they've gone there. But like, if this is a relatively starless culture and it is all down to the culture, is there a better than normal chance of them being able to hang on to those players and develop something? Or are they going to get picked off, as you, you suggested? I, I do think it's inevitable that they get picked off. But since they've created a good culture, the hope is that they'll continue to recruit smartly, which they've done the last couple of years, and that they're able to integrate the new arrivals into that uh, culture. And there are some interesting things they've done to create this culture, which are worth touching upon. They brought in a mentality coach, uh, a guy named uh, Björn Mansvach, who's a former fighter pilot, who's you know flown missions over Libya and then drop bombs on people and this sort of thing like a very serious guy wow. who's gone in and 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 teach the teach them you know how to manage their focus and and this sort of thing and there are a lot of players in the squad who've taken up meditation uh, as a way to manage your focus uh, their their captain have, have spoken about this and about how you know a lot of times as a footballer after after a game you you have to go to bed because you have another game in two days but you're full of emotions and things and you can't and you and you sleep very badly a lot of footballers struggle with this and they've found that meditation has helped them a lot so they've done a lot of things like this and of course the coach Schettel Knutzen uh, who's from Bergen actually he's not he's not from the north he's gone in and he's helped them implement this sort of high pressing style with a high defensive line which is very unusual in Norway it's not really how how football is, is played traditionally we're, we're quite an English inspired uh, country footballing wise the sort well, of you've got Greg Broughton there yeah, yeah the, if the whole the... if in doubt just get rid of it is, is quite strong which is why seeing uh, someone like uh, Marius Lode become this very confident ball carrying centre half uh, who was also selected for Norway it was a 
shame we had our problems with the international games and COVID, which meant he didn't get his debut, but he will eventually, I'm sure. Mm. Uh, so, so they really created something very special up there, which is not just about a star like Jens Petelhauge. It's not just about the coach, though he's done a really good job. It's not just about the sporting director, Osman Björkgan, who's helped them recruit very smartly. It's all of those components together, of course, but also just the general culture that they've managed to create up there, which means they've, they've done something truly, truly special. Come again, Buddha Glimt. It's the time when I ask both of you to choose a game for us all to focus on this weekend. Uh, do you want to go first, Andy? Yeah, go on. I've, I've got a good one for you to enjoy on uh, Saturday tea time. Yes, it is time for you to have your dinner on a tray on your knee in front of the television at 5.30pm on Saturday. Uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach, who are brilliant again in Europe this week, um, having won 6-0 at Shakhtar. They won 4-0 in the home game against Shakhtar. And they really are one of the most exciting young teams in Europe. They're playing at home to uh, Disaster Boys Schalke, who are on this incredible run of uh, 24 without a win in the Bundesliga going into last season. Um, and for ages, people have been going, oh, well, the high watermark of Tasmania Berlin... <laughs> <laughs> 30, 30, 30, 31. Oh they, they can't get anywhere near that. But they're going to. I believe. They're, 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 they're getting closer. They're getting closer. I think they might get even closer uh, when they go to uh, Gladbach this weekend because there is a huge class gap between the two, despite the fact that these two, in terms of their stature, should be rivals. Schalke have had one heck of a week as well. Uh, in that they've uh, excluded uh, Amin Hari, their, their winger, and uh, Nabil Bentaleb, who of course was on loan at Newcastle last season um, until further notice. And um, Vedali Bisevic, their striker, who did them a solid because he's still a good goal scorer, despite being 35 years old at, at this level, um, by signing for them for the minimum wage of €100,000 a year. Obviously, that means they can pay him off on the 31st of December. So... That's exactly what they're going to do. They've said about Bentaleb um, that the latest he will leave us is next summer. They um, tweeted... The club account tweeted a happy birthday to him really? like, uh, earlier in the week and then deleted it after the dis- <laughs> disciplinary proceedings. And Harry, the only reason they're not kicking him out, I think, is because he signed a new contract and they, they, they can't really get rid of him. And they lost their, their technical director, Michael Retschke, this week. Apart from that, nice, smooth week for Schalke. Good, good, I'm, I'm feeling good about their chances good, good this times weekend. Good times in Gelsenkirchen. So. Lars, oh, you say Lars, by the way. I say Lars. We'll it's call fine, the whole thing fine, quits in a moment. <laughs> but not before Lars gives us his game of the week. So, so I'm going to go to Spain. Uh, slightly ahead of Andy's game, earlier on the day on Saturday at uh, quarter past th- uh, quarter past three on La Liga TV, you can if in the UK you can watch Valencia versus Atletico Madrid. It's still I'm, tea time I'm, for me. I'm excited about this game <laughs> for for two reasons. First of all, I think the way it's shaping up in La Liga, I, this has got to be Atleti's year to do it again. Surely, with, with Barcelona being all at sea, with Real Madrid being slightly underwhelming, you know, Atleti have started so well. They've conceded two goals in their first eight games, but they're also scoring goals with Juan Felix having his big breakthrough season by the looks of it. So, 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 so it's really interesting to follow every Atletico Madrid game at the moment to see if they mm. can can get that title push going. But of course, Valencia, you mentioned 
mentioning things falling apart at at uh, at Schalke. It did look for a while like Valencia were going to be that team in in uh, in, in La Liga when they lost three games in a row recently, and because they've had to get rid of so many of their big guys and a lot of disgruntlement at the club. Now things have stabilized slightly. They eked out a draw against Getafe. They sensationally beat Real Madrid, and then they drew against uh, Alaves uh, last time out. And and there is a hope there at the club that out of this sort of creative destruction that the younger players in the squad will come through and, and maybe they will but certainly as, as a big team who's not having a great year who are trying to stabilise things to avoid doing a full Schalke intriguing to see uh, how things go with Valencia going forward so them taking on Atletico Madrid should be a cracking game more points in the last two games than Schalke have managed all season so, so there's that. <laughs> you say neither and I say neither shall we call the whole thing quits go on then. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the Acast Creative Network.